Welcome to Consent Conversations at the Bird. Your hosts are Jennifer Storm and Carmen Brown. Welcome back to Consent Conversations at the Berg, a podcast to foster vital dialogue around the issues of consent. So yes, we are going to talk about sex. Buckle up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jennifer Storm. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the Director of Equity in Title IX. I'm here with our Associate Director of Prevention Education, Carmen Brown, and my co-host. Hi, Carmen. Hey, Jen. As Jen said, my name is Carmen Brown. I'm the Associate Director of Prevention Education here at Muhlenberg. I use she, her pronouns, and I just want to say welcome back, everyone. I cannot believe that here we are again at the start of another school year. Um, I don't know about you, but my summer flew by too fast. Absolutely. I wish we had a little bit more time, but here we are back on campus, and we have a lot of really important things to talk about today. We definitely do. We know that for all of you students, this is a really hectic time. You're trying to get settled. If you're a freshman, it's scary. You're having so many different things happen. You're meeting your roommates in person, learning this campus layout, being ushered from one educational event to the next. You're most likely a bit overwhelmed and exhausted. So just let's start with taking a really big, deep breath. You're here, you have arrived, and we are so happy to have you as part of our Muhlenberg community. A new year of college is an exciting time. It's filled with endless opportunities for learning and growth and new relationships and increased independence. Regardless of whether you're a freshman or a senior, each year holds new opportunities. We want your time here at Muhlenberg to be fun, challenging, and for you to create memories that will last a lifetime. You also have an inherent right to live free from violence. At Muhlenberg, we strive to create a campus environment that is inclusive, supportive, and accepting. We appreciate that everyone who comes to us is doing so with vastly different backgrounds, different experiences, various cultures and ideologies, influences, and curiosities. We want Muhlenberg to be a place for you to grow, for you to expand your heart and mind, to respectfully challenge yourself and those around you. This may very well be the first time you're interacting with people of different cultures and races, religions, sexual orientations, and gender identities. You will not understand everyone or agree with all of your peers. The staff or the faculty here on this campus are also going to challenge you in ways that you've never been challenged before. If you weren't challenged, if you did agree with everyone, then that would be a pretty boring experience, don't you think? We want a rich, diverse experience for you. We want you to learn while you're here. And that's going to mean that you're also going to have to unlearn some things that maybe you thought you understood prior to being integrated independently into this diverse community. And we're here to help you on this journey every step of the way. Inevitably, you are coming to this campus with biases. We all have biases, right, Carmen? You're absolutely right, Jen. So I guess this is like lesson one of many of this podcast. We all have biases. And sometimes we're really aware of these, other times not so much. So to kind of help you to recognize what you may have as a bias or what you may be don't necessarily recognize as of yet, we're going to discuss two different types of bias. These are explicit and implicit. So the more simple one is the explicit bias. And this is when we're actually aware of our own prejudices and attitudes that we might have towards certain groups of people. These expressions of explicit bias occur as the result of an actual deliberate thought. So we're aware of it. And this is usually occurring when we perceive an individual or group might be a threat to our specific well-being. 
But since this explicit bias comes from deliberate thoughts, that means these expressions can be consciously regulated. So we have the power to be able to recognize them and change them. We're more motivated to control these biases and prejudices because they're typically dictated as socially unacceptable and we're aware of that. So we work harder to stop them. On the other hand, implicit bias isn't as easy to recognize. These are the attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, our actions, our decisions in an unconscious manner. So in a way that we're not necessarily aware of. Most often, implicit bias causes us to have feelings and attitudes based on an individual's characteristics, just a few which have include race, ethnicity, age, and general appearance. These are not biases that we're born with. Rather, they develop over the course of our lifetime, beginning at a very young age. We're influenced by tons of things, including our family, friends, media, and even sometimes just the spaces we find ourselves in. And because they are unconscious, unfortunately, we're typically not aware of them existing. This makes it really difficult to control these biases and prejudices, and likely they're going to come out when our guard is down or we're in spaces where we feel uncomfortable. But just because it might be difficult to control biases, especially implicit ones, it's important to learn how to control them to stop harm from occurring or prevent further harm from occurring. So some of the things we can do to check ourselves and others as well is to first off get in the right mindset. As human beings, I think it's vitally important that we recognize we're imperfect and we're vulnerable to biases. We don't ever expect anybody here on campus to be perfect. We know that things are going to happen, but it's important to recognize, first off, that we are imperfect. Always slow down. Take your time. Reflect in situations so you can be more mindful of your responses and actions. This is really going to help you to be internally motivated to do the right thing when the time comes. Next, you can work at debiasing yourself. So implicit biases are malleable. This means if we expose ourselves in a meaningful way to individuals and mindsets different from our own, we can begin to change our biases. Replace the stereotypes is the next one. So if we slow down our thinking, which we do by getting into the right mindset, we will be better able to recognize when it becomes problematic and driven by stereotypes or other biases. Label this thinking for what it is. Don't be ashamed of it, but label it for what it is right in front of you. Then take it a step further and think about why this occurred. Then one more step further and replace that original thought with a thought not formed by stereotypes or biases. So these three steps are kind of things that you can do to check yourself in various situations. The very last one is you can call others out. This doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go around with your head on a swivel calling out everything that you hear. But if you hear a friend or a family member say something that's biased, subtly call them out. It never has to be a big deal. It's usually just enough to let them know what they said or didn't say wasn't okay. And that's going to help them to go through those three steps that we just approached you with about getting in the right mindset, debiasing yourself and replacing those stereotypes. I mean, it's so important to understand that you're not going to know all these things and that mistakes are going to be made. And it's possible that harm is even going to happen. And so by preparing for that and being open and willing to learn and educate yourself and then repair that harm, that's really what we're here as a community to learn. You're going to have opportunities to expand your knowledge in these areas 
we really want you to seek out events and groups and programs on campus that are different from your lived experience. If you ever feel uncomfortable or that someone is harming you because of your perceived or actual race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, sex, or any other protected class, we want you to know that you are not alone. Our offices specifically are here to help with education, to provide supportive measures, and if necessary, to facilitate reporting and accountability. So you can reach out to both Carmen and I at any time to seek support. And we let you determine what that support looks like. Just by coming to us and reporting something, that doesn't mean that somebody's going to get in trouble. It just means that we're going to have a conversation and try to sort out what it is that you need to feel comfortable moving forward from that experience. So the next topic that we're going to dive into is pretty intense. And it's really what experts and academics have come to refer to as the red zone. The red zone is a time of statistically heightened instances of sexual assault that happens typically during the first semester of college. The red zone is the time span that really starts from the fall semester through Thanksgiving break. And it is when more than 50% of all college sexual assaults are statistically found to occur. This is also the time where there's parties all over campus. And it's not a coincidence that these two things collide and can create a devastating impact on students in their freshman year. So we really want to unpack some of the concepts today around how we can prevent this from happening to you. We're going to talk about boundaries, sexuality, expressing wants and desires and likes, and then also understanding consent. So Carmen, let's talk about that really foundational place. Most people assume, you know, if you're in college that you have already explored your sexuality or that you've had previous sexual experiences. And that is oftentimes so not the case. Many students come here with very little to no actual lived experience and very little accurate knowledge about their own identity and sexuality. So can you talk a little bit more about this? Absolutely. So I think in answering this, we're first going to start with some facts and figures and then tie in a bit of my own experience, because I think it's important to talk about my own lived experience in this concept as well. So we're first going to start with a conversation around sex education, because a majority of really figuring out your own identity, sexuality and what that really means to you comes from experience or questions that would be asked in sex education. Planned Parenthood defines sex education as high quality teaching and learning about a broad variety of topics related to sex and sexuality. It explores values and beliefs about those topics and helps people gain the skills that are needed to navigate relationships with their self, partners and community and manage their own sexual health. So I believe and I think many others in this field would also agree that sex education is extremely important for teens in middle and high school. Good sex education won't only go over the basics of sex, as that definition just showed, but also talk about safe sex, boundaries, relationships, STIs, how people view their own sexuality, what they want, what they don't want. However, some of you may or may not know, sex education is not mandated to be taught in public schools in the United States. I think this is becoming more of a well-known fact, but I do still think that there are spaces out there where this isn't the knowledge. So every state or commonwealth in the United States has their own laws around what sex education looks like in their own public schools, if it's even mandated to be taught. So keep that in mind. States and commonwealths don't have to mandate it to be taught. So furthermore, not only is it up to the state on how and when it should be taught, again, if it's taught at all, These decisions are more often than not left up to individual school districts. So the state will give like this really broad 
idea of what school districts should be doing. And then the individual school districts are made to kind of come up with their own ideas. So this means two neighboring school districts in the same exact state could have two completely different curriculums when it comes to sex education. According to a poll conducted by Planned Parenthood in 2014, 93% of parents supported having sex education taught in middle school and 96% of parents supported having sex education taught in high school. Those are big percentages. Mm -hmm. As of October of 2020, and I think even more recently as well, we could state that 39 states, only 39, and the District of Columbia currently mandates some kind of sex education and or HIV education. So keep in mind also that these mandates are going to look completely different. They could be abstinence only. They could discuss all sorts of sex education and HIV education. <laughs> but also these mandates only apply to public schools. Private schools determine on their own if they will have any type of sex education and what that looks like included in their curriculums. And I think we would be remiss if we also didn't mention that there is a kind of sweeping conservative movement happening in the country right now where things like sexuality and gender identity are literally being stripped from schools where you literally can't say the word gay or say LGBTQ, um, you know, and we're seeing book bans that are taking away these really rich cultural books that teach these different diverse experiences. Mm -hmm. So we have to be really cognizant that the experience looks so different for wherever you attend school. Absolutely. And I think that's a Perfect segue. So thank you, Jen, <laughs> into kind of my own experience in this regard. So I grew up not far from Muhlenberg, about an hour and a half north of here in northeastern Pennsylvania, where I attended a public school throughout my entire, you know, K through 12 career, as you would say. <laughs> um, so Pennsylvania is a state where sex education is not mandated, mandated to be taught. And if it is taught, abstinence must be emphasized. So while my school district did choose to teach sex education, it was abstinence first. And we know that that's not very helpful sex education. There was some discussion about different forms of birth control and STIs, but anything more than that was really left to the students to figure out on their own. In addition to this, I grew up in a household where topics like sex and sexuality weren't typical conversations at the dinner table. I think my mom, more than my dad, knew that it was important for me to learn and know about, but she herself wasn't equipped to do this teaching, and most parents aren't for the most part. For me, this confluence of events between school and home meant that when I went to college, I had very little knowledge around sexuality, safe sex, boundaries, any of those topics that are so vital when it comes to learning about what we like and dislike, what we're okay with and not okay with and just about our own general safety and individual sexuality. Everything I knew came from a book my mom gave me, of which there was little follow-up on, and the influence of friends and TV and movies. So you can imagine, based on all of this, what my knowledge around sexuality and all it encompasses looked like when I was getting to, ready to go to college. I think it's also important to mention that I am a heterosexual cisgender woman, for individuals who identify as LGBTQ or who may still be discovering their identity, this adds on even more layers. Absolutely. And as we discussed, that that our community is really under attack and it's a community that I identify with. Um, so we realize and appreciate that you may be coming from a school or a town right now where your identity wasn't even allowed to be discussed. Um, and these are just such important areas. So many of us live our whole lives with our parents or primary caregivers, and we're influenced by them, right? Their values, their beliefs. 
And not all of us felt comfortable or safe to explore our own values, norms, beliefs, or identities. I know for myself, I knew I was gay in kindergarten, yet the messaging I got around me was so negative and it was really harmful that I just, I hid that part of myself for a really long time. And it wasn't until I arrived at college did I feel safe enough to really begin to unpack that. If I had not had a safe and affirming environment on campus to find community, it would have been really hard for me to come out. So I want students to know that at Muhlenberg, there are wonderful opportunities to join groups on campus where you can learn, where you can find community, and you can explore your identity. First stop that I would make is at the Multicultural Center and talk to Robin Riley Casey about all the wonderful programming and education that they have to offer. They also have volunteer opportunities and leadership opportunities among the affinity groups. I know how scary it can be to feel alone. And I want each of you to know that whatever you are struggling with on campus, whether it's loneliness, feeling homesick, unsure, insecure, or having an experience that might be harmful, there is support all over this campus for you. Our counseling center has amazing people available to help you navigate some of these tough emotions. So please don't hesitate to reach out to them or to reach out to Carmen and I. I mean, a lot of what we do is sit and have conversations, sometimes really hard and uncomfortable conversations with students, but they're conversations that matter and they're so important. So please utilize us. Absolutely, Jen. And just to kind of talk a little bit more about what I do as the Associate Director of Prevention Education, because I don't think a lot of people know what prevention education is, um, but essentially my goal here at Muhlenberg is to support the healthy exploration of sexuality while working to end sexual, gendered and intimate partner violence. So I focus on making services both preventative and restorative in nature, supporting students' physical health, personal safety, and just their overall sense of emotional well-being, which we know is so, so important to success on an academic level. So not only do I do this through programming and our peer education program, Voices of Strength, special shout out to them, but also through being present to be a support to students if they're curious about different things when it comes to their own sexuality, identity, and sexual activity. My office door is always open. I'm located in the lower level of the Seekers Union. So if a student's looking to chat more about concerns they may have, or if they're just looking for more information, I'm there to have a conversation and be a support. It can be tough sometimes to have these conversations around sexuality and identity in groups of people when we're in a space that's new, such as a college campus. I really strive to provide that safe space for students to come to if they're looking for someone to talk to. We can have a conversation about some thoughts you might be having, or you can simply come to me to get connected to other resources, both on and off campus. We have a host of on and off campus resources. One note I do want to touch upon is that I am a mandated reporter. I think this is really important to mention mm -hmm. because if students are looking for a confidential space to talk about a harmful experience, unfortunately, I cannot offer that space. Of course, neither can Jen as our Title IX and Equity Director. So confidential spaces on campus include the Counseling Center, Health Services, which you can both walk into and get connected you can also walk in to see the college chaplain and the director of the LaFell Center for Jewish Student Life, and they both serve as confidential individuals as well. So you know going into them, you have a space to be able to share what is on your mind without the fear of having to go through a larger process potentially. Yeah. So I want to break down mandatory reporting just a little bit more. Um, you're going to hear this term a lot. There's a lot of mandatory reporters on the college campus. What that essentially means is that if they become aware 
of an incident of that may be a crime or that was bias in nature or assaultive in nature that they do have to report that into my office. Now, that does not mean that we launch an investigation and that we, you know, take you through a whole process. What it does mean is that I'm going to reach out to you and I'm going to give you the opportunity to tell me what you want to do. You don't have to respond to me. I usually use the rule of three. I'll reach out to a student three times. If I don't hear back, then I will just kind of set that report aside. And if the student ever comes back, we'll have a conversation. So I do want you to know that you can have conversations with Carmen and I. Just know that if you disclose these things, we will have to report it. Obviously, the reports come to me, so I'm going to be the one reaching out to you. Uh, But again, we don't want that to limit you. Uh, We just need you to know that because those are the kind of the rules of the college. The only way that the college or my office would kind of take ownership of that experience and not give you a say is if there was a larger threat to the community. So if you had information maybe about a serial predator on campus or if you had information about um, somebody that did something to you and then you knew they were going to do it to other students and that put our greater you know, community at risk, then this, the college would have the obligation to kind of investigate that and make sure our campus is safe. So just kind of wanted to break down um, what mandated reporting really looks like and what it means. You can also find information on our website. So let's jump into some myths because there are so many when it comes to sex. <laughs> uh, the first one being everyone's doing it that everyone on college, uh, college campus is having sex. And this is so not true. <laughs> um, people are not all having sex. Studies show that actually most students are not having sex on a consistent basis. So don't believe the hype. Don't feel pressured. This is not something that you have to jump into when you get here automatically. In fact, just last year, the University of Michigan did a sex survey and found that about 38% of its students had not engaged in any sexual activity that semester. That's a pretty significant amount of people. So really, please don't feel pressured. Much of the pressure that you feel is most likely in your head and it's not rooted in truth or fact. Also, if someone is pressuring you into something, that's a really good time to check in with yourself in a really authentic way. If someone has to beg, plead, or pursue you in any way to have any type of sexual interaction with you, that's a problem. We're asking you to trust your instincts, trust your gut, and honor that. You absolutely do not have to do anything that you don't feel ready for or comfortable with. If someone is saying things like, you know, you, why, why won't you do this? Please do this. We've been, we've been dating for this long and, you know, this is the expectation or I bought you dinner or you're a prude or I'm going to tell all of our friends. Please know that that is pressure and that's pressure that you do not have to engage in that is not a real comfortable enjoyable healthy sexual encounter if somebody has to beg you and plead and bargain then there's a problem so that really kind of gets into your right to say no right so carmen that brings us to this really vital topic i mean it's why we call this podcast consent conversations because we're talking about consent and how important that is so can you talk a little bit more about that absolutely so consent is extremely important, not just for sexual activity. I think a lot of people fail to recognize because consent is discussed so wholly around sexual activity that we actually give and take away and don't give consent on a regular basis all the time, whether or not it has to do with sexual activity. Today, we are going to talk about it in the form of sexual activity, but I also encourage you to think about it not only in that sense, 
but also think about it in the sense of what you consent to and don't consent to on a regular basis and how easy it is to do it that way. It should be just as easy when it comes to sexual activity. So, of course, again, another plug for Planned Parenthood. We love them. They're a fantastic resource for all things sex education, but also for learning about consent. So they have a model known as the FRIES model. We all love FRIES. Um, And that stands for freely given, reversible, informed, enthusiastic, and specific. These are the things that you need to keep in mind when it comes to consent. So to start off freely given, Jen kind of touched upon this a little bit. So this means consent can't be obtained through the use of physical force, any type of threat, intimidation, where the other person like actually reasonably believes that the threat will be carried out. Any type of manipulation under the influence of drugs or alcohol through the use of coercion, essentially anything where the person doesn't feel like if I say no, then I am actually putting myself in further danger. Right. So then. We can also, as I mentioned, think about coercion. So coercion can kind of be a little bit confusing sometimes, but coercion can look like attempting to engage someone in sexual activity by making someone feel guilty or obligated. So like Mm -hmm. Jen said earlier, you know, saying, well, this is expected or I bought you dinner. We've been dating for so long at this point in time. They might lie. They might threaten to end the relationship or threaten to spread rumors about the other because they're not consenting to or because they're not um, engaging in whatever sexual activity is on the table. On to the next part of the model, which is reversible. This means that even if consent is given, it can be taken away at any point in time. People change their minds all the time. We change our minds all the time. The same goes for sexual activity. Someone may be feeling at one point in the night and they may be naked in bed with their partner and then they decide they're no longer in the space to engage in that sexual activity. And that's absolutely okay. You have the right to change your mind at any point in time and your partner has to respect that. That's on them. Next up, we have informed. So this essentially means that you can't consent to something if you don't have the full story. For example, if someone says they're going to use a condom and you consent to having sex with them while they use a condom and then they don't use a condom, that's not full consent. It's very simple. The next part of the model is enthusiastic. I think this is pretty straightforward when it comes to sex. You should only do things you want to do and that you're excited to do. It should be exciting and fun. That's the purpose of it. If you're feeling like you're expected to do something or if you're just not feeling it, consent isn't there. And then finally, we have specific. So this means that saying yes to one type of sexual activity, like going to the bedroom to make out, doesn't automatically mean that you've said yes to other types of sexual activity, like having sex. Consent should be received on an ongoing basis each step of the way for each act of sexual activity. Also, a little bit further, consenting to sexual activity at one point in time does not mean that person consents to all sexual activity moving forward. It's never implied by past behavior. It's always present. Consent has to be received in the present moment. So just because you may have engaged in sexual activity with someone in the past does not mean that there's a blanket consent for future interactions for either party. And I definitely recommend this is like a really short overview of the Fry's model. But Planned Parenthood's page on the Fry's model has so many resources. They have informative videos that actually show what asking for consent and receiving consent looks like. And I just think it's a really fantastic resource to take advantage of. So I highly, highly recommend taking a look at it. And everything, Carmen, that you just talked about in terms of consent, gaining consent, understanding it, 
it requires another C word communication. <laughs> like you have to talk about it. Yes. Um, so we're going to kind of tackle this next myth that talking about sex isn't sexy or that you shouldn't talk about it. You absolutely have to talk about sex. How are you going to know what you like, what your partner likes, what is comfortable, what is not, if you're not talking about it? And it's not only sexy, but like it's really, really important. I want you to just kind of think about the last time that you made plans with a friend to go to dinner, right? Think about how many text messages or conversations that you engaged in before you came to agree on the place, the time, where you would meet, et cetera. All the logistics around going to dinner. You both have to find the same food that you like, determine a time that's mutually convenient, determine all right, who's driving or if you're walking, where are you going to meet? There's a lot of logistics that go into dinner. So why would you think that you're going to have an enjoyable sexual encounter with someone that you've never had sex with before without talking about it? Or even with someone who you have had sex with before? It's literally the most intimate thing that you can do with another person. So you have to talk about it. Otherwise, not only is it going to be awkward AF, it's potentially harmful, even when you or the other person is not intending harm. You have to know what you like, what you don't like. If you don't know these things and explore them first with yourself or with someone you really trust, you're not going to be able to communicate those things to the people around you. So you're going to need to discuss your likes and dislikes. If you don't know them, then you're going to have to have a conversation with, well, I don't know if I like that, but I'm open to trying. Or that's something I'm pretty sure I know I'm not going to like, so I am not even open to trying, right? You have to kind of understand within yourself what your comfort is. And it's not saying that you can't have those communications and then that opens you up to new likes and new experiences. That's kind of the point, but you have to communicate about it. You've got to express those things. And when something doesn't feel safe or doesn't feel comfortable or it gives you that feeling in your gut and you all know what I'm talking about, it's that intuition that we all have. Listen to it. Listen to it and honor it and just then end what's happening. It's okay to set a boundary and say, you know what? I'm not comfortable anymore. Or I know we did this last week, but I really felt uncomfortable about it afterwards. And so I need to set a boundary with you that while I'm willing to do X, I'm no longer willing to do Y. It's as simple as that, but it's really, really important. So Carmen, I know we talk a lot about boundaries and how to assert those boundaries in intimate settings. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah. So I just also want to say that, as Jen mentioned, like having these conversations, not only with yourself and reflecting with yourself, but also with your partner. If you are if you and or your partner are uncomfortable talking about what you're open to and not open to when it comes to sexual activity, I usually say that that's a major sign to slow down, yeah. to take a step back. Are you both ready? Are one of you not ready? Because if that's the case, more harm could potentially be caused. So as we talked about with bias and as we talk about with anything, really, we live in this really fast paced society. And sometimes all we need to do is just take a minute, mm -hmm. slow down, pause and really think about it. So in helping you to think about it, first, I think it's important to take a look on an individual level at what you like and dislike, what you want and don't want. Because as you feel comfortable with those things, it's going to be easier for you to then communicate them to a partner. A few things before we get into some questions to ask yourself. Everybody has different preferences when it comes to sexual activity. Another myth. So do not fall prey to the thought or idea that because you like or dislike something that you aren't quote unquote normal. There's no such thing as normal when it comes to sexual activity or anything in life, really. 
You should not be comparing your likes and dislikes against anyone else's. If someone makes you feel bad for what you like and don't like when it comes to sexual activity, that is a big red flag to stop and take a step back from that relationship. That most likely means that, unfortunately, that person's not on the same page as you and they're probably not going to respect your boundaries and you have every right to have your boundaries respected. So with this said, when thinking about what you like and dislike, what you want and don't want, here are some questions to start off with. This is not an exhaustive list. There is no exhaustive list, but this is going to get you on a path to thinking about some of this stuff. So first off, how do you define pleasure? What does that look like for you, right? No specifics at all. When you first hear the word pleasure, what comes to mind? Think about what feels good to you, both in a non-sexual and sexual way. So, and then take this a step further and think about what do I like and dislike from a partner in non-sexual terms? And then what do I like and dislike from a partner in sexual terms? And when you think about these things, focus on the five senses, right? So sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. For example, a non-sexual like for sight would be, you know, I love the color of the turning leaves in the fall, right? That's a very simple one. It may not be related to a partner, but it's to get you started. A sexual one like sight would be, I love the look of my partner's wet skin after they get out of the shower. Something like that. Something that's a turn on that you like. It's just as important to do this with dislikes as well. Maybe you don't like the color of the turning leaves in the fall. Maybe that's not your jam and that's okay. (laughs) Maybe you don't like when your partner is wet after they get out of the shower. That's okay too. But it's important to recognize these and to classify them. And then, of course, thinking about this and really just kind of walking through these step by step, you could write them down. You can have a list. You can type them out. You can do whatever you want with them. We just encourage you to know what they are. Familiarize yourself with them. And the last question I always encourage students to think about is, are there certain fantasies you have? And are these fantasies that are just fantasies or are these fantasies that you want to act out at some point in time? That's important recognition. One of the things, too, I want to really add is that you all most likely started communicating with each other online. And we live in a society where texting happens more than communication face to face. And so it's so much easier to be empowered and emboldened emboldened to kind of say things in writing that you might think about. Right. Like it's easy to express a fantasy as a way to maybe kind of turn somebody on or as a way to try to get somebody to like you. And then in reality, though, when that person's in front of you, you might not feel as comfortable. And I've seen this time and time with students where in text it's easier or it's your boundaries are kind of lowered. And so it's easier to kind of say things that maybe you're not quite ready to do. And it's let's be honest, you're all trying to get to know each other. You're all trying to learn, you know, your own likes and dislikes. And so you may say things in writing to kind of get someone to like you that maybe you truly aren't really ready to do. So just definitely be mindful of that too, that, you know, what you're kind of putting out there and what you will actually do in reality is something that you really want to dissect and think about, and you might not even know. So these are just really good questions to ask yourself. And as I mentioned, these are just some questions to get you started. Um, Your journey of discovering what you like and dislike and what that means for your sexuality is going to be a long one, and it should be. Once you get started, you'll probably find that your thoughts will take you on your own path to finding more about yourself in this context and your likes and dislikes will lead you to be able to create and know your limits and boundaries when it comes to sexual activity. And as I said, as you're able to familiarize yourself with these, you're better going to be able to communicate them. 
But also keep in mind, never be afraid or ashamed to inform others about what your likes and dislikes and limits and boundaries are. It's up to them to respect you and what you want and don't want. And you deserve a sexual partner who's going to respect you and what you've identified for yourself as enjoyable. And with that said, I want to talk about the other side of this, which is respecting boundaries, just as important as creating boundaries. So if you're in a position of initiating sexual activity with a partner, first and foremost, show respect. And there are several ways that you can actually do this. The first is by communicating your intentions clearly and giving people a chance to share their intentions and boundaries with you. If you are initiating sexual activity, then you opening and starting that conversation is going to help make your partner feel more comfortable with you. And they deserve that respect. If they indicate a need to stop, say no, withdraw consent, accept and stop immediately. There is no negotiation, as we talked about. If they say no, that's it. That's not freely given. They're not freely giving any type of consent. So you need to accept that and take a step back. That doesn't mean, and you can ask them, you know, like, what are you comfortable with? Do you want to go back to making out? Do you just want to sit and watch TV? Do you want me to leave? And allow them to make that decision for themselves. If you're unsure what's okay in any interaction, ask. Never make assumptions. Again, communication is vital. If you have questions or are unclear, check in with them. We ask questions all the time, right? On a regular basis. Sexual activity should be no different. And of course, last but not least, don't take advantage of the fact that someone may be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. This just isn't okay. It's straightforward. They cannot communicate their intentions clearly if they are under the influence. I also want to mention one last thing, which is very important about likes and dislikes. These are going to change over time, and that's natural. As I mentioned, this is like a lifelong journey. As we have more experiences and explore ourselves further, we're going to find out more about ourselves. Maybe we discover that that fantasy we thought was just a fantasy is actually something we want to do in real life. It's just like any other part of our lives. I can say for a fact that who I was at 18 years old and a freshman in college is not anywhere close to who I am today. And that's okay. And I'm happy with that. I learned, I grew in every facet of my life and everybody else should learn and grow in every facet of their life, including their sexual lives. So at the end of the day, just remember to stay safe, respect others and not be afraid to demand the respect that you deserve. Yeah, absolutely. Carmen, it's so important. Um, so we've realized this is a lot of information <laughs> that we are throwing at you in our first podcast of the new year. We just want you to come onto campus, have a safe and exciting start to the new year we want you to have fun. We want you to be safe. And we are here as a resource. So please reach out to Carmen or myself. Um, you can do so via email at carmenbrown at muhlenberg.edu or jenniferstorm at muhlenberg.edu. We're going to record this podcast monthly. It's going to get put out. If you have topics that you want us to cover, uh, if you have questions that maybe you are um, uncomfortable asking in a public way, go ahead and email us. We won't out you on the podcast, but maybe we can, you'll give us an idea for a topic or we can dive in deeper into something that maybe your you and your friend groups are thinking about. We're also here for prevention, for training, for events, or if you find you or yourself has been harmed in some way, we're here. Finally, as we talked about communication being the most important thing, just remember when in doubt, talk it out. Consent Conversations at the Berg is a production of Muhlenberg College, the Office of Equity in Title IX, the Department of Prevention Education, and WMUH Allentown. 
This program is recorded and produced in the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania.